Well, if you'll turn in your Bible to Hebrews <laughs> chapter 1, we are done with uh, Kings. We finished Kings, uh, first and second Kings uh, last week. So now we have a new place to turn. And if you would uh, turn to the book of Hebrews, you can find the book of Hebrews after the uh, what is known as the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And we will look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 this morning. <clears throat> Let's uh, pray together, and then we'll read. O Lord, our God and our Father, help us now as we open the Scriptures. We pray that you give us Understanding, may you grant me liberty of speech in the preaching of the word, and may the word be rightly divided. We pray that the Spirit might apply the word to the variety of needs that we have among us, and we ask, Lord, your blessing, that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after... He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Well, I think that these verses are an appropriate segue for our transition from the book of Kings uh, now to the New Testament. As you remember from Kings, we really saw what was a kind of tragic vector uh, where there was this ongoing decline, uh, both in the northern tribes in Israel, but also eventually in the southern tribes, though it took longer for that downgrade to reach the nadir. But we see here that God has all along had a, an answer, a solution uh, to this problem, and that, of course, would be the sending of Jesus Christ into the world, that the son of David, Jesus Christ, would uh, come into the world and be that king that all the other kings were unable uh, to be, even the best of them, David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, they could not measure uh, by any comparison to the glory, the power, the holiness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is supreme. One of the themes of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to see it in two parts this morning. Number one, we see the supremacy of the revelation of the Son the supremacy of the revelation of the Son in verses 1 and also in a little bit of 2, 2a. Verse 1 
and also 2a. And then the second point, there are only going to be two this morning, is the supremacy of the Son over all things. So that'll be in verses 2b and verse 3. So the supremacy of the revelation of the Son, and then the supremacy of the Son over all things in verses 2b and in verse 3. Now, let's look together at verse 1 and a little bit of verse 2 again. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Now, this is where I'm getting our first point here, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the revelation of his Son. What is the author of Hebrews And by the way, I'm going to say the author of Hebrews a lot because we don't exactly know who the author is. Lots of commentators speculate on who the author might be, but, you know, some say Paul, some say Apollos, some have suggested others, but we're not exactly certain. But um, so you'll hear me say the author of Hebrews a lot in the coming weeks here. I just want you to know that. Uh, But we do know that uh, this author did indeed write by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, he tells us something of that very subject in the opening of this book. Notice here that he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, or in many divers, as the old King James used to say. Now, what is he saying here? He is saying that God, over the period of redemptive history, would speak to his people periodically in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different manners. So, for example, um, sometimes he spoke to, say, the patriarchs in a dream. Remember how Jacob had a dream of a ladder, a vision going up to heaven. Sometimes God spoke to his people through the angel of the Lord. You remember how Abraham was sitting in his tent in the heat of the day, and these Three beatific beings come into his presence. One of them we think might be even the pre-incarnate son of God himself, Christ himself. That is Christ before he became a man, um, sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord. God spoke to Moses in a bush. God spoke to Moses also face to face. Uh, God spoke in a variety of ways. He gave uh, visions to uh, Daniel. He gave visions to Ezekiel. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that periodically God would bring new revelation to the people of God through these means. These were the means. Now, God also came by way of his spirit. And so he would enable David to compose psalms. He enabled Solomon to write wisdom literature. He gave the words to Moses that gave us the Pentateuch, the first book, five books of the Bible. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that um, with God giving this periodic revelation over time through a variety of different people and a variety of different means, now God has come to the climax, the fulfillment of that revelation in the sending of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest revelation, boys and girls, of God is given to us in his Son, 
and that all the other revelation that preceded this revelation of the Son was anticipating or looking ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we are being told here that two things I want you to keep in mind. Number one, that there is a continuity of revelation from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It is not to be thought of as a, uh, a big, deep divide between Old Testament and New Testament. You will have some churches, for example, that will view the Old Testament now as irrelevant, other than an occasional good moral story. And that now all we need to do is focus on the Son. But we don't want you to have that understanding here. There is a continuity. Remember, Jesus said that Abraham looked to the day of Jesus and rejoiced in it. We know that Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. They speak of me. So the the Old Testament scriptures were always pointing us to Christ. The author of Hebrews is saying, though, that that fulfillment has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have a greater revelation in the Son. This does not make the former revelation irrelevant, though. Okay, so that's point, sub point number one. I want you to see that there's a continuity. There is an organic continuity between old to new. Think of it as a flower, boys and girls. How many of you girls, I'll say girls, how many of you girls particularly like flowers? How many of you like, you know, tulips or daisies or roses? Well, you know that the flower has, you know, two main parts, right? It has the stem and with the leaves on it, but then it has the, the blossom on the top part, the pretty part. Both are necessary, okay? Both are, both are necessary for the flower. In the Revelation, it's the same. We have, if you think of the Old Testament as the, the stem and the leaves, it's not the prettiest part, but it's necessary, but it was Leading up to what? To the flower. That Christ himself is now the flower of revelation. And so we we look to the glory of Jesus Christ. So we need to see that we should not think of the stem as separate. Even if you harvest that flower and collect them and put them in a vase with water, you don't get rid of the stem, right? The stem goes down in the water and draws up to the flower itself. So in the same way with the Bible, we want to maintain that organic unity of both the old and the new revelation of God. However, that is, uh, we should also keep in mind, while we don't want a divorce between the old and the new, and we want to maintain that continuity, we should not think of that continuity as flat, but rather we should see it as a progression maybe even to a high and beautiful mountain. Many people like to go hiking, and they will uh, go often hiking up mountains. That's one of the favorite destinations. Why? Well, because they like to get to the zenith of the mountain. They like the view. Uh, They like the sense of accomplishment, that they have gone up uh, this high mountain, and they can look over many miles on a clear day. So with the scriptures, the scriptures have this continuity, but it is an upward progression as we ascend the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ here. 
So the author of Hebrews is saying that while God spoke in many different ways uh, through many different people in the time of the patriarchs, in the time of Moses, in the time of the kings, in the time of the prophets, now he has spoken to us by a far superior revelation of himself. Now, why is the why is the sending of Jesus Christ a far superior revelation of God? Well, first of all, because Christ is God himself. And so there could be no greater revelation in that sense than God himself coming in the Son. Now, of course, we know, as the Bible teaches uh, young people, that God is triune. Triune, can you say that word? Triune, a little Mr. Rogers here. Triune, <laughs> that uh, God is one in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet we know uh, that each person of the Trinity is also fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. That does not leave you with three gods, though. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. That God in each person, fully God, yet God is one. So when the Father sends the Son into this world as a man, <clears throat> he is not diminishing his deity in any way. However, we know that Christ in some ways covers that deity, if you will, with his humanity. That Jesus Christ comes into this world not in the glory and in the power in the sense of um, exaltation, but comes by way of humiliation. He comes as one born, as your catechism teaches, in a low condition, conceived by the power of the Spirit of God so that he truly is God, yet born of a woman, born under the law. Paul says, born under the law, so that he would do what? That he might fulfill the law for you and me. That he would obey all the commandments of God. He would uh, then go, having fulfilled the law entirely, he would go to the cross for you. He would die as a substitute for you on that cross. The author of Hebrews is saying here that there is no greater revelation of God than in Jesus Christ, because he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Now, that means something very important for us all to understand. A lot of people want to know. A lot of your neighbors want to know. How can I know God? Where is he? Where do I find God? I believe in a God. I'm a, you know, maybe they'll say I'm a theist. They'll say I'm not an atheist. But... Have they come to know God? Well, how do you come to know God? You come to know God by way of the Son. The greatest way to come to know God is through the Son. Now, yes, there is general revelation looking out in the creation, but there is special revelation in the Bible. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the greatest of that revelation is found in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would say pastorally what makes, I think, the most sense is if people want to know who is God or how to know God, you would direct them to those books in the New Testament first that would be the clearest expression of this revelation that the author of Hebrews is telling about. And that's why so many organizations will have new believers 
or those that are inquiring start with the Gospel of John, for example, because the Gospel of John really, I think, does a good job of showing forth that Jesus is the Word come in the flesh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And, and so that's always a good way for us, I think, also to help our people. Now, if you have friends who want to start in Genesis, that's fine. Uh, but the author of Hebrews is just simply saying here, the greatest expression of God is found in Jesus. Now, it means something else. And I want you young people here to understand this uh, specifically. When you read of what Jesus does in the Gospels, when you hear what Jesus says in the scriptures. Um, You are hearing that which God the Father himself would say if he were there in that place. That Jesus is a perfect representation of the Father. That That Jesus Christ is saying exactly what the Father would have him say. He is doing exactly what the Father would have him doing. Every time you see Jesus performing a miracle of mercy, that is what the Father would have him do at that moment. When Jesus utters certain words or preaches the Sermon on the Mount or rebukes his disciples because they're hindering the children or you know, uh, says to the woman, go and sin no more, that's exactly what the Father would do in that moment. That, that Jesus is, is doing because his divine nature is exactly... Uh, the, in, in sync with the, the divine nature of the Father. And so the, the Father could say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Christ is, is saying and doing and thinking uh, everything that God the Father would have him do. So to see the Son is to see God. Here again, going back to our neighbor who wants to know, how do I know if I know God? How, do, how can I come to know God? You come to know God by coming to know Jesus Christ. Jesus himself has told us this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me here. Now, Jesus is not trying to be bigoted here, and, uh, but he is trying to convey the truth that the way to God is through the Son. That, that the Son is the revelation of the Father. So it says here in verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. I want you to notice something there also in that prepositional phrase. In these last days. Now that was written 2,000 years ago. and that, I, I, I emphasize that because when a lot of Christians hear that phrase, in the last days, they're thinking the final weeks before the coming of Christ, or maybe the last seven years or something like that before the coming of Christ. I want you to understand that when the New Testament speaks of the in these last days, they are not thinking primarily of those final months or weeks or years before the second coming. What the New Testament means by in these last days is in this last, if you will, epoch. This is the last epic. This is the last period of time where God has given us this revelation until he comes again. God had spoken to us in many ways and over a variety of periods of time 
through many different authors. But now in these last 2,000 years, he has spoken to us in the Son. And, and therefore, we are not supposed to look for further revelation until Christ comes again. But that the scriptures are sufficient for the believer, for everything that you have need of in life or doctrine, uh, until Christ should return or you go to glory. Then you'll get new revelation. Okay, but for now, he has spoken to us in the Son. Now, of course, you say, but pastor, what about Paul? What about Peter? What about the, the author of Hebrews here? How do you explain? If he has spoken to us in the Son, then why do you have these other epistles that were not directly, uh, immediately written by the Son, but mediated through the human authors? How do you explain that? Well, I would simply just say that you go back to the Gospel of John and in the upper room discourse. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, I'm going to lead you into all truth. Now, a lot of us, we read that in our Bible and we think, oh, Jesus is speaking about us. He's going to lead us into truth. Now, that's a fine application if you want, but that wasn't the meaning of what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is that I am that final revelation of God for these last days. However, I will give you my apostles upon whom the church is built, my spirit, and my spirit will lead you as you preach, as you teach, as you write these letters, my spirit will inspire you. He will help you as you compose these things so that that which you write will not be the mere writings of men, though they will be Peter, it will be Paul, it will be James, but it will be James and Peter and Paul writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration so that he speaks to us. It is still Christ who is speaking to us. Does that make sense? It is Christ who speaks to us, but through uh, these instruments. Now, this was not given in perpetuity for the church at all ages. This was a promise that was given immediately to his apostles. And remember that Paul said there were qualifications for the office of apostle, one of which was that you had to have seen the risen Christ. And so it's not possible for subsequent generations to have the office of apostle. The office of apostle was a temporary office given by Christ that the New Testament might be completed, that the church foundation might be laid, then whereby we would uh, be governed as a church in life and doctrine by the inspired scriptures. So you say, well, pastor, are you saying you're not an apostolic church? No, I am. we are an apostolic church, if you understand what apostolic means. It means you're governed by the apostles. Those that Jesus himself appointed, those who saw the risen Christ. That's why Paul himself said he was an apostle untimely born. He was the surprise child after, you know, the parents have thought they've had all the children they're going to have, and then lo and behold, suddenly there's an, another child. Paul was the surprise apostle. I was one untimely born, he said. Well, if Paul's untimely born, 
then what does that say about anybody else who wants to claim they're an apostle? That is, Paul was saying he was the last apostle. He, he was the, the last one. So we, we should, therefore, we should look to the scriptures for the revelation of God. That in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son and through his ordained instruments of the apostles, Jesus being the cornerstone, the apostles being the foundation, we're told, and and that we look to the, the word of God. This is why we should not look to the Book of Mormon. The, this is why we should not look to any other writing and lift it to the level of Scripture. This is why we should not take the testimony of so-called Latter-day prophets um, and, and elevate it to Scripture. Now, people may speak things that are consistent with the Word of God, uh, and, and that's fine, but that's not new revelation. That's speaking according to the revelation that's already been given. And if it's something other than what has been given, then it's contrary to what the Scripture says, and therefore should be avoided. So we ought to, um, as the Reformers you know, were big to make the case about the sufficiency of the Scriptures, uh, because in them Christ is revealed, and we have Christ uh, in the Scriptures, both that which is of the Gospels, but also of the Epistles. Now, that is the supremacy of the revelation of the Son, verses 1 and 2. Sorry, I'm not checking my phone, but I have no watch this week, so I am checking my phone, but just to see what time it is. Let's talk about the supremacy of the Son, and, and then I want to make applications uh, for us as well. So let's look here again. In these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And then here's where I'm picking up now. I'm calling this 2B and verse 3. 2B and verse 3 uh, with regard to the supremacy of the Son over all things. Whom He appointed heir of all things through whom he through whom also he made the world now what is it saying here the author of hebrews is saying that god given the sending of the son and the accomplishment of christ's work in this world now christ has been exalted now a few minutes ago i was saying that christ did not come with great power and glory to be observed by men But he came what? As Philippians chapter 2 says. He came by way of humiliation. He came by way of meekness. He came by way of humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is, something of the glory of God in Christ was hidden. Now, why would the Lord do that? Why would the Lord come on a donkey, on a foal, rather than a great white stallion? triumphant. Well, because I think for some very important reasons. Number one, Christ hid in some sense his glory or set it aside in order to secure your salvation. Remember that the people were often looking for this Messiah 
for a king, but they had a great misunderstanding and didn't really know in some sense what they were looking for. They often were looking for a king just like their forefathers in the Old Testament, like a king like all the other nations had. You know, they liked Jesus when Jesus gave them bread and when he healed them of their sicknesses and disease. They wanted to make him king. But they didn't understand the the fullness of Christ's mission. And they didn't understand that Christ was ultimately coming into the world to suffer and to die on that cross for their sins because that is our greatest need. And Jesus said, you seek me because I fed you. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food of eternal life. And this food I give to you, my flesh, my blood. You must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. And they're like, oh, what? No, I, I don't want it. Man, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? I'm out of here. You want to go home, honey? Yeah, let's get out of here. And, and the disciples start leaving in droves. And, and Jesus has to turn to his inner 12 and say, are you guys leaving too? And Peter says, oh no, Lord, we love this stuff. No, (laughs) Peter's like, where do we have to go, Lord? There's nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. It's not as though the inner 12 even liked it. But they, they knew that he was the son of God and there was nowhere else. There's no other name under heaven by which men could be saved. They, they, if, if you don't have Jesus, where are you going? And so Christ veiled his glory. He, he veiled it in, in his incarnation. But notice here that the author of Hebrews is, doesn't want us to misunderstand, to think that there is no glory to Christ. He, he said here, no, the, the, the glory, the honor, the power, the dominion of Christ, it, it was temporarily set aside that he might accomplish our salvation. But notice what the author says, he has appointed him, Jesus, heir of all things. That is, now that Jesus has gone to the cross, he has suffered for our sins, he has vindicated the law of God, he's fulfilled the law of God, he's taken the penalty of the law of God, he's substituted himself for all his people who would believe on him. He has taken their sins, he has taken the eternal equivalent of the punishment for those sins. He has been buried in the grave for three days, and now Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The Father sends the Spirit, the Spirit of God raises Christ bodily and glorifies Christ's body and human spirit within him is glorified. And now he is what? Notice the scripture says he's appointed heir of all things. Now Christ may reign in power and glory and dominion. You know, what made the temptations of Christ so tempting? You know what it is, don't you? It's that the devil was offering Jesus everything that the Father was going to give him. But without having to go to the cross. When he took him up to the pinnacle and said, look, look, here are all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give it to you all if you just bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship Satan and you won't have to suffer. You won't have to be humiliated. You won't have to be abused and spat upon. You won't have to be crucified. You won't have to undergo the indignity of dying for sins that you never committed. You never have to undergo the wrath and judgment and curse of God, the equivalent of eternal hell. I'll, I'll avoid all of that for you if you'll just bow down and worship me. That's, that was the nature of the temptation. And I'll give you 
everything your Father's promising you. And thank God Jesus didn't do that, did He? He didn't take the shortcut. But instead humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on that cross, that God would raise Jesus from the dead on the third day. And now Jesus Christ has been appointed heir of all things. Now what does it mean to be an heir? Well, it means you, uh, boys and girls, it means you inherit. You become the owner, the occupier, the possessor. Legally, everything is now yours. So if you have that aunt, you know, who leaves you money in her will when she uh, dies, then legally, then that you become the heir of that inheritance. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that now Christ is, is heir of all that God has created. All things belong to Christ now because of his obedience. Uh, he, he has been exalted and now he has been given all things. All things now belong to the Son. He is appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. That which the triune God did in Genesis now has been redeemed by Christ. And now it belongs to Christ. And Christ will see to it that there come about a new heavens and a new earth. In which there will only be righteousness. There will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. No more suffering, no more wheelchairs, no more ICUs, no more frail bodies, no more uh, indwelling sin within us, raging back and forth between that which we long to do and that which we are tempted to do. It will all be new. It will all be glorious. The lamb shall lie down with the leopard. The child shall play with the cobra and not be hurt. We will skip like calves. We will go out into green pastures and still waters all because Jesus Christ has been appointed the heir of all things and you are in Jesus Christ this morning if you know him by faith. Now that's good news. Jesus has been appointed heir of all things and you are in union with him. You are in union with the heir. It's kind of like marriage. If your wife comes into an inheritance and you are married to her, you come into that inheritance as well. We are who? The bride of Christ. Our husband has come into a great inheritance. The author of Hebrews is saying, you have come into that inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ. If all things belong to Christ, Paul tells us what? All things belong to us. Now, you, you say, oh, what, but wait, pastor. I know. We want to be careful not to have an over-realized eschatology. This is where some of our friends, particularly those with big TV ministries, I think go astray. And they hear words like this, that Christ is heir of all things and we are in union with Christ and therefore heirs of all these things and therefore you get whatever you want now. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. We follow the way of Christ. We come into this inheritance the same way Christ does. As Christ 
came into this inheritance by way of the cross, by way of suffering, by way of humiliation. So is our experience. Though we have the taste of the glory that is to come, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us that gives us this inexpressible joy. So we do have real blessings that belong to the future that are ours presently, but yet we too still must suffer in this life. Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So that the son has gone into his inheritance. We are united to him, but we we lag behind, if you will. It is a certainty that we will come into this inheritance ourselves. But for this present time, we must suffer even as Jesus has suffered so that we experience that which the theologians call the now and the not yet. We have tastes of glory in the spirit, but yet in the flesh we still have these struggles. So we should be thankful that we have, while we suffer, the hope of the future glory that is ours, but also we realize we don't want to have an over-realized eschatology in bringing too much of the future into this present fallen world. This takes, I think, wisdom to understand uh, that Christian balance there. Jesus is told, we are told that Jesus is through whom he also made the world, that is, Christ made the world with the Father and with the Spirit. There is in the Hebrew in Genesis 1 a plural used, let us make, in man in his image. Now, if you go off to a liberal university, you, that religion professor is going to tell you that they didn't know about the Trinity back then, and that's not what that means. Okay? Uh, now, a couple things we could say about that. Uh, number one, we know theologically that Christ, because this verse, we know that he was there. Now, it, it may be true uh, that Moses didn't have as full an understanding of the Trinity as you and I have, but nevertheless, Moses was inspired by God to write in the Hebrew the plural there, that let us, so that all, and, now, and, and it could be a majestic plural, it could be what they call in Hebrew an honorific plural, where it's conveying the majesty of God, but even if it is that, theologically it is not inconsistent with it being applied to the Trinity. Okay, Even if the original meaning by, and understood by the original audience might not be there, nevertheless, we know theologically it is there. Okay, And that is what the author is saying, that even as the Spirit was hovering over the waters and the Father was saying, let there be light, Christ, we are told by the book of Hebrews here, was also there with the Son, I mean, excuse me, with the Spirit and with the Father, that all three persons were invested in the creation. Now this creation, because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, has been given to the Son. The Son has inherited this creation because of His redemptive work. And indeed, because of His redemptive work, this creation that He has inherited shall be transformed into the glory that... Christ has purchased for it by his atoning work here. 
We may move on. I'm going to make final applications and close. Look at again at, at verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Like father, like son. The son shares the divine nature with the father. The father fully God, the son is fully God. Your catechism puts it this way, that, that each person being fully God, equal in power and glory. Okay, Equal in power and glory. And that we see here in verse 3, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ also is governing the world. Now that he has been exalted, now that he has been uh, put at the right hand of the Father, that is, he reigns with the Father in glory. That's what it means to be put at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't mean God has body parts, but it is an anthropomorphic way of speaking to us about the position of Christ. position of Christ is that the Son now, having suffered, having been humiliated, now is exalted to the level and glory of God that he always had in his divine nature, but now as the God-man has been brought up. Now he who once was made a little lower than the angels now governs the angels, as we'll see next week. He is higher than the angels. He is more supreme than the angels. And so God has exalted Christ. The good news is that you have been exalted with him. This means, by way of application, that you and I must look regularly to Christ by faith. Our faith in God comes by way of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you, this morning, do not possess a saving relationship with God, this is the way to attain to a saving knowledge of Christ. A saving knowledge of God comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And that any poor sinner, any poor publican, who will but yet confess their sins and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise from Scripture that if we will confess that Jesus is Lord with the mouth and believe on him with the heart, we will be saved. You can be saved by looking to Jesus Christ even this day. Today, thankfully, is a day of salvation. Thankfully, we still live in these last days. And so long as these last days continue, so long salvation is offered truly and sincerely by God through Jesus Christ. So if you're a teenager and you haven't come to faith yet, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been a church member all your life, but you're still uncertain as to whether you really are in the kingdom, am I a believer? Do I really believe these things that are written and spoken? You, you look to Jesus Christ. We also have to avoid all those who would have a low view of Jesus. A low view, whether it be the Jehovah's Witness who knocks at your door and says that Jesus is the first act of God's creative work, or the mainline church that says Jesus is a great teacher, a good moral man, but surely not the Son of God, God of God. Uh, these, are, are to be, these views of Christ are far too low. What we see in the book of Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews presents to us a high and exalted view of Christ. He is high and lifted up. He is altogether lovely. He is glorious. He is beatific in his divine 
nature and in his perfect humanity. He is sufficient for you and for your children and your grandchildren. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is exalted. And that's what John sees in Revelation, isn't it? What does he see? He sees a great white warrior with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God, riding on a white steed with the, the imprint on his thigh that he is the Lord. And he offers us himself. If you will take him by faith this morning, you don't have to, again, as I've said in the past, you don't have to walk an aisle this morning or sign a card or raise your hand. The scripture says, though, you must believe. Scripture says you must repent. Scripture says you must look to Jesus Christ for everything, not You do your best and Jesus somehow makes up the rest. But all is of Christ. It's not of me, even by 20% or 50% or even 1% me. Even my faith, we are told, is the gift from God. It did not originate with me. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. But God has made us alive together in Jesus Christ. He is the one by the Spirit who enables you to stretch out your right hand. He enables you to see with eyes that formerly were blind or hear with ears that formerly were deaf and to believe on the Son and to see Him. He indeed is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. 